introduced by Morgan Freeman. Oh! <laughs> uh, hello, everyone. Welcome to Life of Brian. Uh, and there's Brian's latest little toy that he's been playing with. It's called uh, the uh, the Let's Get Sued app. It's a new one. Check it out at the App Store. You'll find it. It's in there. Hello, Brian. How are you going? I'm well, thanks, Kev. Um, is this yeah. the real Brian Mannix or is this an AI version? Well, I'll tell you what it is. It's um, actually... <laughs> It's, um, let me just find something here for you. Here you oh, go. It's Oprah. My next guest is me. I'm richer and more famous than everyone else, so why not? I've just done a nude spread for Playboy. They say my vagina is like the Murray River. <laughs> Hang on, I'm about to fart. Ooh, it's going to be a big one. Here goes. Oops. We can't use that, can we? No, probably not. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, not all of it. Um no, not the, the Murray River. I forgot well, about the Murray yeah, River. Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. Um, All right. We'll, we'll move on downstream now and uh, and talk about, about this edition of Life of Brian. This is the real Kevin Hillier and now it is the real Brian Mannix. Hello, Brian. This is Brian Mannix. <laughs> that, st- I- that, that AI stuff where you can take and pe- they use people's voices and it sounds just like them and, my God, is that scary. It's frightening. I actually believe that I could start World War Three, um, you know, because I can get Joe Biden yeah. to shitbag the Chinese <laughs> and say, I'm going to bomb you in half an hour. And it sounds and the video looks just, you know, it looks like him telling you. It's, yeah. it's um, I can understand why people are a little bit concerned about it, especially um, writers and artists because you've got this other one where you can um, create art. And I was just having a fool around with that the other night, and it's absolutely amazing. You sit there and you say, "I want a desert sunset," and I've oh, got, pictorial stuff is yeah, it's scary. Yeah, and I've got Jesus walking through the desert, but he looks like uh, Elvis Presley. And then you know, I get an Elvis Jesus walking through the desert, and it yep. looks magnificent. So, yep. yeah, it's um, it's a hell of a thing, and God knows, you know, I, I imagine in about five ten years, you'll be able to just tell AI that you want to make a cartoon about something and the people look like this and it will do it for yep. you. Yep. It'll save a, I mean, it'll save an enormous amount of time. I hope it allows us, like a lot of things we've had, um, we've, we've jumped, uh, you know, at shadows with a lot of things in, in the entertainment industry over the years. If we use it as a tool to help our creativity and to aid our creativity and to take away some of the uh, the cumbersome detail stuff that you have to do uh, and allow us to be more creative, it'll be fantastic. But if we let it take over and do our job for us, it will not be a good thing. Well, I think that writers will be the first affected by it because, you know, you don't have to be a writer. You can just put in the four key points and it will write it for you. Yep. Um, and I think that artists like, you know, can I tell the difference between an AI photo or a real photo or a photographer? Um, and I think that, you know, essentially people are lazy 
So they would go to this to make – because when I was working at Sportsbet, I was amazed at how poor people's writing skills were yeah, and yeah, their yeah. spelling and stuff. You know, they'd send emails and it's like, you know, I'd be rewriting stuff for other people because they just weren't good at writing. And they were very brilliant people. But yep. when it came to actually putting, you know, pen to paper or something, they were useless. And I think there'll be a lot of people – that, you know, probably can't even spell properly that will be using this stuff and probably taking jobs away from people that can spell and are quite creative. So I, I approach it with um, interest, but it does scare me. Yep. Got to be across it, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those people who I, I hope it never replaces that that little bit. Look, if it, even if it's 2%, of humanity that we put into everything that we do, let's keep that because that that's the difference between us and the machines, and we need to we need to keep that. Now, this program that we have for you called Life of Brian dot 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 Mannix that is has truckloads of humanity, truckloads, truckloads. Well, you know, we're, get, we're getting trucked tonight, are we? We are because not only can Murcotts teach you how to be a better driver of a car, mm. their expertise is making you a better driver, no matter what vehicle you then jump into, you'll be a better driver. So why don't you give them a call? Well, you can call them and until AI takes over and starts <laughs> driving your car, which isn't happening for a little while yet, no, not yet. Um, you need to be top of your skills. So you call the number 1300 555 576. Write this down. Get your pen and paper. Ask mum and dad whether you can take the time off to go to the Murcotts thing. 1300 555 576. Tell mum and dad it's important and you're going to do it and let make them pay for it. Murcotts.edu.au. That is the uh, website. So jump on and uh, and get across uh, all the programs they have and uh, and uh, be a better driver. Graham Nash is a superstar about to tour Australia uh, for the umpteenth time. Uh, he's, he's touring right across the world now at uh, 82 years of age. He's still going strong. He's still as sharp as a tack and I had a fabulous conversation with him. Um, so you, that's coming up shortly. Another and- Early, another early one, was it? Yes, it was. <laughs> yeah. was? Once again, I'm not there. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, we talked about all sorts of things. We talked about the first uh, meeting of uh, him and uh, David Crosby and Stephen Stills, the first time they ever met, the first time they sang together, their first recording. We talk about the Hollies, a um, couple of couple of classic Neil Young stories uh, that uh, that he tells you and his memories of, uh, of the late David Crosby as well. So it's a really good chat. Really enjoyed uh, talking to Graham. What was it with David Crosby that all lesbians wanted his sperm to have a baby? That's right, Melissa Etheridge. I think. Uh, I think both her yeah. children are David Crosby. I think they are. I, I think, think that's he, right. he was, you know, handed and out all over the joint. To, was, um, yeah, he was a very strange. I, I had a bit to do with him on uh, on Twitter. I tried mm-hmm. my guts to get him to do this program, and uh, at one stage he sort of agreed, and then then disappeared. Then he was too busy dying well, and yeah. couldn't do the show. In the end, yeah, the last. Uh, sort of was toing and froing with him for a little while there, and uh, thought I had him at one stage, and then he disappeared off the face of the earth again. And then then he came back and sort of said, "Oh, why would I want to talk to you?" And I thought, oh, "Okay, I'll, I'll give it a miss." And never happened. But uh, did, fortunately, did you, did you abuse him? No, 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 not at all. Why would I want to talk to you? Well, I don't want to talk to you, you yeah. balding prick. <laughs> well, there's, I guess, there's a lot of people on Twitter who who do sort of uh, have discourse with with uh, famous people. And and bake them, and then and then we'll have a crack at them. About so I, mean, I I don't do that, but you can get caught in the middle of other people doing that. So unfortunately, it never happened. But Graham Nash did happen, and you'll hear that shortly. And our flashback: we're going back to uh, right in the middle of the pandemic. 
we were in lockdown in Melbourne, you and I, and our guest at that stage uh, was in quarantine in Brisbane, uh, Brian Brown. Oh, yes. Um, great Australian actor, great oh. Australian icon, and, um, yeah, um, writes some good stuff. Yep. And, um, yeah, look, you know, he's part of the furniture, really, isn't he? Yep, we'll talk more about uh, Brian shortly. But let's get to Graham Nash uh, and uh, have a chat to him about uh, his forthcoming Australian tour and a whole lot more. Hello, Graham. How are you doing? I'm, I'm doing very well. You? I feel, I feel excellent, thank you. Good to hear because I know you. Uh, happy, happy's a big uh, state of mind for you and an important state of mind for you. Uh, yes, I'm alive and <laughs> and I'm trying to uh, I'm trying to live the best life I can, you know, yeah. which I which I've always tried to do, of course. Um, and I I just feel uh, healthy and I feel uh, still passionate about music and I'm looking forward to coming down and seeing you in the new year. Have you, have you ever thought about why you're so optimistic about all these things and why you why you have this passion, why that passion still burns within you when it's so easy to have been, you know, snuffed out or become cynical? Well, originally it was because of my children. You know, I have three children and seven grandchildren and I, I, I want to stay positive to make the world a better place and, uh, than we left it, you know, um, and... and that's basically the best thing I can do, you know, is is stay positive. And I I know that it, it it looks incredibly ugly out there right now. Obviously, you know, the world is is going through tremendous changes, uh, and it's burning up, you know, both politically and environmentally. Um, but I must remain I must remain positive because you know. The, the, because the the other way, you know, to give up and say no, it's totally screwed up, and it, it is not for me. It, it doesn't uh, it doesn't lead anywhere positive. Yeah, is that is that uh, that sort of uh, involvement and engagement with that? Is that what drives you as a songwriter? Yes, it 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 it, it, it it's my, it's the best I can do. I all I can do is my best, and I try and do my best. I try and be the best musician and the best husband and the best father and the best friend, and I'll never make it, but I'm trying at least. Yeah. Is your, is your passion for the music still as uh, as vibrant and as, as healthy uh, and as driving force for you as, as it was back in the, you know, the 60s when you were knocking around as a six- or seven-year-old with Alan Clark? Yeah. I mean... The world is in incredible shape right now, and 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 I, I don't want to give up. I, I want to be here and fight. Um, if Trump becomes president again, I, I'm not sure what I'll do. But I, I must, I must fight. I must be positive, and I must do the best I can at everything I do. In 1971, I think it was when you know Chicago came out and the, the chorus of "We Can Change the World." Do you still think there's there's enough momentum? Within the ranks of the of the music business and and conscience in the music business to still have that kind of feeling about the world and about what you can it's, do. It's 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 changed a lot. You know, I think Trump is is way worse than uh, Richard Nixon, and we thought that Richard Nixon was awful. <laughs> you know, and 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 he, in fact he was. Yeah. But Trump is far more dangerous. You know. Uh, Richard Nixon wasn't trying to turn the truth upside down. You know, he wasn't trying to isolate people. He wasn't trying to divide people like Trump is doing. And uh, 
I think we can still change the world. I think it's getting uh, harder because uh, the people that run most of the news organizations in this world realize that that you can't piss off the people because they, they start asking questions and that's the last thing you want. You know, they want us to just be sheep and to lie down and shut up. But I don't want to be sheep. Yeah. And there have been times during uh, during your career and in different in different uh, parts of your career where um, people have reacted uh, in a negative way to to some of the messages that have come from yourself and Neil Young and 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 the groups over the days. How'd you handle How'd you handle that? We kind of felt that we were right about particularly, and uh, you know, the last uh, tour that CSNY did about uh, living with war. You know, um, it, it we knew that people were going to disagree with us. And and the truth is that we we were kind of laughing because we realized that if you buy a ticket for a CSNY show, what do you what do you expect? <laughs> I mean, we were expected to tell the truth from our point of view. And what what happened is that we began to really realize that the, we were right about George Bush and, and all the people and, and Dick Cheney and, and and people like that. That the war was wrong and that it was a false war and that we were we were lied into this war. Um, and we kind of felt that we were right about it. And, and you know what the truth is, Kevin? I, I, I would like to ask every single one of them who said that, you know, string them up, hang them, you know, throw them out, do nasty things to them. I'd like to ask now what they think of George Bush. <laughs> would be interesting, I think. Yeah. Hindsight's a wonderful uh, a wonderful tool for some people. Uh, for some people, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, can I can I go back to the, to the Hollies and talk about them because I'm I'm a massive massive Hollies fan. I, I love the Hollies music. Is it is it still bring a, well? It brings a smile to your face. I can see that now. Yeah, uh, a, a friend of mine just sent me a, a, a CD of sixty songs of the of the Hollies on the BBC. With the BBC, normally it was live. And if you count it off and you screw it up, you can't stop because you're live on the radio, you know. And uh, and I, I remember the very first time that we ever heard ourselves on the radio. We were walking to a BBC show to do a, to do one of their programs, and we were walking past um, a, a shop window that had been uh, smashed in, and there were two workmen putting in a, a brand new window. Um, they had a little transistor radio, uh, and we heard our record coming out of it and we knew that we made it <laughs> i mean we were five kids from manchester and you know and and here we were in london listening to ourselves on the ra- on the bbc radio we thought we were monstrous <laughs> <laughs> but uh, i i do appreciate uh, what the hollies stood for you know um we, we we were a good we were a really good band i mean don't forget that there was only there were only uh, two or three of them that were playing instruments in the band because me and Alan Clark didn't play instruments. Yeah, you know T- Tony Hicks and Bobby and uh, Bobby Elliott and, and Bernie Calvert were the were, were the heartbeat of the band, and uh, I, I began to realise just how good the Harleys were at, at at what they were supposed to do. What we were supposed to do was make people enjoy themselves, w- make people want to dance and get up on the dance floor and jive and and and, and smooch with their girlfriends or boyfriends. Uh, we knew what the Hollies were supposed to be doing, and we did it really well. 
you're almost apologetic for the fact that you wrote your songs in the early part of the Hollies because you would do it, you did it under a, a pseudonym, which is uh, you think about that now. Does that does that blow your mind when you no. when you think about that? It, it was it was it is amazing. Yeah, uh, um, my mother's father, uh, so my grandfather on my mother's side was named was Ransford. Oh, okay. And so uh, and so we just used his name to to write. Then we then we had Grauto, which is Graham, Alan, and Tony. You know, put together. Um, yeah, and and we we. I realized when I came to live in America with, uh, when, when I'd heard me and David and Stephen sing for the first time, I realized two things. One, that I would have to go home to, to the Hollies and leave. And two, I'd have to, uh, I'd have to write better songs because <laughs> I was listening to what, what Stephen and, and David and Johnny and, and Neil were writing. And I realized that I could write melodies that you couldn't forget if you heard it a couple of times. But my lyrics, you know, they were moon, June, screw me in the back of the car, kind of <laughs> driving up Laurel Canyon kind of words. So I realized that if I put better words to my my melodies, I'd have much better songs. And I, I believe that that's what happened. Yeah. Take me back to that first time now. There's there's conjecture about, I know you you say it was in Joni's, uh, Joni Mitchell's house. Um, I think yes. Stephen Stills' version has you in Cass Elliott's lounge room or something. Uh, and I know he's, he's he's completely wrong. Right, good. <laughs> and I I did see an interview where where Crosby agreed with you. So the the majority must rule yeah. here. Well, you know though why I know he's wrong, because Stephen has always told people that we did we sang first at Cassie's house, and then the next day went to Joni's. Except the net the la- the day before I was in London. Ah. I couldn't possibly have been in Cass's house. <laughs> I was in London. It's like an Agatha Christie, to, to, <laughs> Agatha Christie play, right, isn't it? Right, <laughs> exactly. So St- Stephen's always been wrong about this and he always clings on to it and God bless him. <laughs> have you ever felt that feeling that you felt that that night when you when, after you got him to sing the song twice and then the third time you added your your part to it? Have you ever felt that feeling again? Or did you feel that feeling every time you guys got together and sang? I've had similar feelings, but anyone can sing the same notes that me and David and Stephen sing. There's no mystery about that, right? There's no mystery about three-part harmony. What the mystery was, was when me and David and Stephen added our voices together to form one blend, nobody in the world sounded like that. Mm. Like I said, you can sing the same notes that we can. You can't sound like CSN. Only CSN can sound like that. And uh, we've known that all along. Sweet Judy Blue Eyes strikes me as the song that, that, that crystallises everything about your sound uh, and about the sound of CSN that just just blows the top of your head off. Yeah, that was the first uh, song that we tried to record too. Oh, wow. And... Uh, we sat down uh, with Bill Halverson, who, who only Stephen knew. David and I had never met Halverson before that. He was our engineer, of course. Uh, and and we sat down with with uh, three microphones, uh, you know, two on Stephen and one for me and David to sing on. Um, and it took us to finish the suite, probably took us in about 11 hours. And we got to the end and uh, Stephen was looking a little perturbed and i said what's the matter he says I, 
I'm, I'm not sure that we got it. <laughs> I said, okay, I think we did, but what would you like to do about that? He says, let's re-record it. I said, if that's what you want to do, let's go. So we spent another 11 hours doing a second version of the suite. And we got to the end of it, and I looked at Stephen. I said, so? He said, we got it right the first time. <laughs> um, <laughs> you talk about writing better songs. You, you already had Marrakesh Express, I think. Was was that already written when you when you joined? Was, yes. was Teach Your Children already written then, or had you started no, to write it? It, it, was, uh, it was halfway done by the time that, uh, yeah, by the time we got to uh, do Deja Vu. Um, you talk about writing better songs. I mean, you wrote some great songs of the Hollies. King Midas and Reverse, I think, is a much underrated song by by many, many people. And you know, some of the other ones you wrote, Carrie yeah, Ann. That, that, that was that was the uh, that was the song that made me really realise that I had to leave the Hollies. That was even before I'd I'd I'd, uh, I'd sung with David and Stephen. Normally, a, a Holly single would go, you know, after a couple of weeks, be in the top ten. You know, that was. I mean, we had. Hit after hit after hit, as you know, right? Um, and then we did King Madison Reverse. And we, I thought we made a great record of it. I thought Ron Richards produced a great record of it. Um, and it, But it only got into the top 30. And so they stopped trusting my musical direction there. And uh, it's one of the reasons why I had to leave eventually. Yeah. So, so CSN starts. You, you have an enormous success, and then, and then all of a sudden, someone someone suggests. Was it Stephen who suggested that Neil Young should become part of the band? And you hadn't met him. Here's what happened: David and Stephen were uh, having dinner with Ahmed Erdogan. Ahmed Erdogan was the uh, with the boss at Atlantic Records. He owned it, you know, with his brother, and he was a musical genius behind, you know, signing Aretha and, uh, you know. It's Ahmed Erdogan, and, and David and Stephen were having dinner with him. And in the middle of dinner, Ahmed turned around to uh, to Stephen and David said, I know who you should get, man. And Stephen said, really? Who, who is that? He said, um, you should get Neil. And Stephen goes, wait a second. <laughs> Didn't I just have two years of madness with this guy? He's in the band, he's out of the band, he's... Perhaps in the band, and he's definitely out of the band. We're doing the Ed Sullivan show. We're not doing the Ed Sullivan show. This is crazy. <laughs> and you want us to get them back? <laughs> and mm. uh, they said, yeah. I mean, Armit said, yeah. As as you know, and, and as you said, I had never met Neil. And I said to David and Stephen, I said, how, how can we invite somebody into this band and I've never met him? I need to meet this guy. I know he's a good writer. I know he's a great singer. I know this. I still don't know whether I can be his friend, whether I could tell him secrets, whether we, you know, we could gossip. I don't know who this guy is. I need to meet him. I had breakfast with Neil in on Bleecker Street here in Manhattan, where we are right now, and uh, I would have made him king of the world after he left because he was very funny. He was darkly funny. And at the end of the breakfast, I said to him, I said, look, Neil, why should we invite you into this band? And he looked at me and he said, have you ever heard me and Stephen play guitar together? I said, yes, I have. He said, well, that's the reason right there. I said, you know what? You're probably right. <laughs> because here's what went on. During that first Crosby, Stills and Nash record, Stephen played most of the instruments. 
Of course, me and David played rhythm guitars on our songs, you know, on Long Time Gone and Guinevere and, and uh, you know, Lady of the Island and Marrakesh, you know. Um, we played on our on rhythm guitar on our tracks, but Stephen played lead guitar, he played rhythm guitar, he played bass, he played drums, he played percussion, he played piano, he played B3 organ, he played, you know, tambourine. <laughs> So when you get to the end of the record and you realize it's going to be a big hit, what the hell do you do? Because you know you're going to have to go on the road. And how can you do that when one guy played most of the instruments? It's yeah. one of the reasons we needed Neil. And that, that's what happened. Did the dynamic of what you'd established and what you thought CSM was going to be, did that change dramatically with Neil's inclusion? Yeah, yeah it was very different. Um when we were doing the first Crosby, Stills & Nash record, I was living with Johnny. Uh, Stephen was uh, in love with uh, Judy Collins and, and dating her. And, uh, uh, and uh, David was was in his house with his girlfriend, Christine, uh, whom he loved dearly. A year or so later, we're doing Deja Vu. I'm no longer with Johnny. Uh, Stephen and Judy had broken up and Christine had been killed in a in a car accident. Oh, that's right. Yes. Uh, so so Deja Vu was a lot darker. But within you know, within all that, you know, uh it was very obvious that uh this combination of, of Stephen Stills and Neil Young on guitars was 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 precious, was really excellent. And uh, and that the, the, those were the main differences between those two records. Was it fun then, when you look back on it? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Are you kidding? You've got to understand something. We were musicians and we were very much like Neil. When everything's right, we're right there. When everything's wrong, we don't want to talk to each other, you know. <laughs> um, but we made great music as Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. And I truly believe that, that it's a very different band than Crosby, Stills & Nash. Yeah. Yep, very much so. I, I like most people, heard Harvest um, on the radio and then on my stereo. Yeah. You you heard Harvest for the first time in a very different setting. Oh yes, I was uh, I was up at Neil's with David. Um, we had taken him two uh, two two swans uh, that we had bought for his uh, beautiful pond that he that he had on a on a where he lived. Neil said to me, he says, you want to hear Harvest, my new record? I said, sure. Yeah, why not? I'm here. So, I, you know, I'm expecting to go into the studio, big speakers. Great. This is going to be wonderful. He said, no, get in the boat. I said, what? He said, get in this little rowboat. And so I thought he may have like a cassette player or, you know, a walkman there with him that we were going to go out into the middle of the lake and listen. But no, it's Neil Young. <laughs> Neil had his entire house as the left speaker and his entire barn as the right speaker. <laughs> and when he played Harvest full blast, it was an amazing, amazing experience. I, I'll never forget it. And we rolled back to the shore of, the, of this giant lake. And uh, Elliot Mazer, who uh, produced a Harvest, who was an engineer, a uh, friend of ours, came down to, to greet us and he said, so how was that? <laughs> and Neil looked at him and he said, more barn. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> that's how I heard Harvest. Uh, that's that's a fabulous memory. What are you, what are your memories these days of, of David uh, since his passing? Uh, I've been thinking about him every single day. That you know, one what, it, it's it's like you know. It's like living with Johnny Mitchell. Once you fall in love with Johnny, you're always in love, you know. And it was the same with David. You know, I fell in love with David because he was a great person, and he was he was happy, and he was brilliant, and he was musical. Um, and I I I choose only to remember the good times that we had. We had many, many, many great times musically. And I choose to remember the good stuff because the bad stuff about David is just too horrible to even remember. Yeah. It was a challenging friendship, wasn't it? Only only towards the end there, yeah. yes. But yeah. towards the end of his life, we were actually getting together and talking. We were emailing each other and, and you know, voicemailing and stuff. And we I wanted to FaceTime him so I could see his face when I was talking to him. And uh, I set up a time uh, and... Uh, there's a three-hour difference between where I live in New York and where he lives in California. Um, and so I set up a time for 2 o'clock my time, which is about 11 o'clock his time. I knew he would be open, ro- roaring and ready to go. And um, I waited and waited and waited, and, and the call never came, and two days later he was gone. Yeah. But I do choose to only remember the really great times we had musically. Yeah. Yeah, and you had many, many of those. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah. 60 Years of, uh, of Songs and Stories is the show that you're bringing to Australia. Does that blow your mind too, that it's 60 years? Does it feel like yeah, 60 years it, or it, 60 it, minutes? It, no, no, it, it feels like 60 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, no, um, it's been an amazing life, you know, and here I am at 81 and uh, in, in less than three weeks, I'll be 82 years old uh, and, and I, I'm, here I am, <laughs> I'm ready to rock. Yes. When you stand on stage and you play those songs, uh, be it, you know, Bus Stop from, from 1965 or, you know, Just a Song Before I Go or, or you know, uh, Marrakesh Express or when you see the reaction that you get from people and that, 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 the light that that brings to people's faces and and them singing the song with you. Uh, describe that feeling for me now that you have that. It's a wonderful feeling, and you know we had we had a couple of members in the band who didn't like people singing with us. I always loved it myself because when people sing, it means that they know what they're singing. They know what the words are. They know what the melody is, and it means something deeply to them. And I realized that. So every time I sing Our House, every time I do Teach Children or Marrakesh or Chicago, any of those songs, Military Madness, I sing them with the same passion I had when I wrote them because I owe it to my audience to please them. I want them smiling when I leave my concert. That's what I want. Yeah. Is it important to you as a songwriter that you touch people both with the melodies and with the words, that the songs actually Absolutely. do really mean something to people? Yeah, they do. And, and it's, it's very obvious. I got, I, you know, a friend of mine called me a, a couple of months ago and was in Kathmandu in Nepal and heard teacher children coming out of the jukebox. And I went, wow, Kathmandu? Fantastic. <laughs> wow, music goes a long way around this world. 
And, and here in Australia, I mean, you've had, uh, had amazing... The Hollies were a massive band here, much bigger here than they, they ever were in America. Uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young and your solo uh, records as well. I mean, you've had a great, uh, a great affinity with Australia over the years. Yes, and I'm really looking forward to coming and seeing you too. Yep. I actually get to play in that beautiful uh, 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 symphony hall in, in Sydney. Yep. It's going to be a wonderful time because I know what, I, I just finished four tours this year. I did 100 shows this year. Hang on, did someone remind and you you're 81? Yes, well, <laughs> you know. And, and uh, the audience are, are absolutely loving the show. Just want to thank you for your time. We're look, looking forward to seeing you uh, in Australia in a couple of weeks' time and uh, continued great health and happiness to you. Uh, and thanks so much for your time, Graham. You're very welcome, Kevin. Thank you very much. Chicago just to sing in a 
land that's known as freedom How can such a thing be fair? Won't you please come to Chicago For the help that we can bring We can change the world We are ready Must have a code that you can live by, and so become yourself. Because the past is just a goodbye. Teach your children well. Their father's hell did slowly go by. Them on your dreams The one they picked The one you know by Don't you ever ask them why If they told you you would cry So just look at them and sigh And know they so there you go. He's uh, touring uh, very, very soon. Uh, this starts in Melbourne uh, and you'll hear all those songs that you just heard then in that little medley. You'll be playing all those ones and, uh, you know, Chicago, Teach Your Children, Military Madness. He's got uh, so many great songs. So look forward yeah. to Graham Nash uh, live in uh, in uh, across Australia. Now, Brian Brown. Mm. Now, you didn't do a movie with Brian Brown. No, I did one with Nicole. Yeah. Our Nicole. Yeah, but not, I, I didn't not actually right. do a scene with Nicole, didn't actually meet Nicole, but I'm in the same movie, so that's okay. <laughs> that works. You know. That's, um, that's the way it goes. <laughs> and, and Brownie's eluded me. Um, I suppose you don't need two blokes in the same movie that's going to go, yeah, g'day, mate, there you go. <laughs> yeah, fine. Uh, truth. When we, spoke to him, when we spoke to him, he was in uh, in quarantine in Brisbane uh, because of the obviously the pandemic. We were in lockdown in Melbourne, and he just released a book called Sweet Jimmy, which is a collection of a whole lot of short stories that he'd written. Uh, his first his first book. So we chatted to him about that and uh, about his good mate Sam Neill, uh, and also about uh, terrific experience he had uh, when he did that uh, Paul McCartney film. And. Hung out with Ringo as yeah, well. Yeah, so yeah, uh, yeah. all that, all that coming up, and then we'll play a little bit of the uh, the song that Paul McCartney wrote, especially for that movie. Give my regards to Broad Street. So here he is, a great Australian. No, not Brian Mannix. It's Brian Brown. It's the ex full forward of the Brisbane Bears, Brisbane Lions. That's Jonathan Brown. <laughs> well, his name's Brown. You know, they're all yeah, close enough. Yeah, close enough. Hey, uh, how long did the book take you to put together, Brian? Was it something that you've caught have been working on for years or is it something that you just decided to go one day, I'll write a book? No, I didn't even think about writing a book. There was a story in, in the book called Nightmare that I wrote about 40 years ago in Los Angeles when I was came up with an idea for a pitch for a movie and I just kept writing it and writing it and it ended up being a story. And then, so that was written ages ago. 
And then about three years ago, I started to write a pitch for a, for a story again, which is called A Time to Do in there, which was about a bloke that had got caught in a scam and went to jail in Hong Kong. And when he got out, he had to just find out who was behind it. And I wrote that as a, as a and I tended to keep writing, writing, and it became a story. Um, and then I sort of, I showed that to a couple of people and they went, yeah, you're a good storyteller. And I, I like how you've done it. And then I, then I just sort of got a little bit of a, a kick on with that. While I was sitting around, I'd think of something and I'd go, I remember one, one of the stories I had, I was driving on the car and I thought, Jesus, what if Sam Neill was a thief? So I decided <laughs> to start a story about a bloke called Sam the Thief. And Why so would he is a thief, by the way? But anyway, <laughs> go on. Oh, no, he's an evil bastard. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, and, you know, and then I started to think of other little stories and I thought, and I go, oh, I've still got a bit of flowing. So over the last couple of years, and then someone read or read, said, can I have a look at all those stories? And then they read them, and then they said, well, I think uh, Alan Arnold would like to publish these. So the next minute, it's a book, but it's not what I set out to do. I didn't set out to write a book. Because I would never, never be that arrogant. If you said to me 18 months ago, you got a book coming out, I'd have said, pull the other one. Well, there's, um, there's Brian Brown, author. Is that that sit with you nicely now? Are you, you're accustomed to that as part of your moniker? I'm not that accustomed to it. However, being a very practical man, I've written a book, so I'm an author. <laughs> Fair enough. Did you, did you enjoy the process of writing? Because I know... As an actor, it's pretty much a collaborative thing where the director's telling you to stand here and the wardrobe person's making you wear this and, you know, and it's just sort of a bit of a team effort. But with the book, you're the director, you're all the characters and you're the set designer and everything. Was that was that liberating? It's quite good, that. Um, look, the long and the short of it, for 40 or 50 years I've been, I've been a storyteller either yeah. in telling stories in movies or on television where I play a character and in a story and I've got to make sure people believe it so that they'll get carried away with it. Um, that's the job. So storytelling has been a huge part of my life. You know, I might look upon it as like I'm an actor, right? But the, the larger thing is that I tell stories and I produce too. I produce stuff so I work with writers and all that stuff. So the actual thing of storytelling is not unusual to me. It's just that I've never done it in this way where I've actually written down the story and there it is as a, as, a, as, a, as a bunch of words. That's new. And did I enjoy it? Yeah, I did. So, because, I mean, as a, for me, everything's about character. Or, or, you know, the movies I like to do, yeah. there's something to do with the character that I like to, that I want to I wanna put out there or try to put out there. So here I start off with a character, like a bloke called Sam the Thief. And I go, well, who's Sam the Thief? And what's he done? And then I just let it go. And it's the same with all of them. I just... I just start, and I think that's how some writers write. I have no idea where it's going, but slowly but surely it starts to take, uh, it fashions itself into a story and you start to see where it may go. But with some of them, I came to an ending and went, I uh, went back to it a few weeks later and went, I don't like that ending. I don't think it's true. So I went to, you know, I'd go over it again. But, but really, the characters led me to the story. I don't want to do a yeah. spoiler alert here, but did you say you started, the whole process started with a time to do? That was the first one you did? That was the first one in the last three years, in the last two, three years since I've been writing them, yeah. There was one I wrote called Nightmare 20, 35 years ago. Yeah. That, I went back to that and put that in, included that. But no, I started with a time to do about three years ago. So uh, did you, is Frank Testy a, uh, someone that you saw yourself playing? Yeah. Yeah, I thought so. 
Yeah, because I, I went, if that was me, I want to know who the bloody hell was behind this. And I went, ooh. So I was watching a thing on television about these people. And I went, ooh, that's a great impetus for a character and a story. So then I started to write what it might be. And I can see you playing that part perfectly because, uh, you know, he's a, he's a, a sort of bloke with, uh, with, with a, a 30 or 40-year-old daughter. I don't know how old Bonnie is. I can't remember. But, uh, you know, he's a swimmer and he's, uh, he's in good nick and he loves to sit on the, uh, on the, at the Bondi and have a beer and look over the beach and do all that. So that, 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 I see you playing that perfectly. I, I might cast you in that, Brian. Oh, that's good. How much are you playing? <laughs> <laughs> the second language of actors, how much are you playing? <laughs> I was looking at you, 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 you always come across as the quintessential Australian bloke, Brian. I was just seeing your dad and mum as Jack and Molly Brown. You couldn't get more Australian names than that, could you? Jack and Molly Brown. And they had their son, Brian Brown. I remember. Wow. I remember being at school and they used to have these little books and that, and they'd have John and Mary Brown, John and Mary Brown, which was their name, and he became Jack, and Mum was Molly. But uh, John and Mary Brown had a farm, and I remember thinking, we don't have a farm. (laughs) 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 It just sounds like, like, yeah, Jack and Molly had a farm. It's it's, it's a classic. But the the truth is that, you know, I was brought up by Molly. Jack wasn't around. Uh, Molly Brown was the... uh, the power, the huge power and influence in my life. Well, she's done a great job. You strike me as a bit of a Henry Lawson kind of guy. Would that be right? Well, that's a that's a pretty nice thing to say, but I think I sort of understand what you're saying. Like, I tend to write about what I what I know and what I like. I, I'm not stretching madly here, and there's not a lot of adjectives in these stories. And there isn't any. It was a dark and and cloudy night. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't have stories that go on a dark and cloudy night. And he came around from the the back of the red red picture theatre and, and pulled out a gun and shot him. I just thought he pulled out a gun and shot him. Yeah, good. That's good. Straight to the chase. It's fantastic. You mentioned the Beatles. You you did you did that film with Paul McCartney, didn't you? I did uh, give my regards okay. Broad Street with uh, with Paul. Yeah, great fella. And Ringo. And oh. Ringo. And I was, every time, you know, we were shooting in the BBC studios there at one stage, and every lunchtime Paul would pull out his guitar and he'd start playing Elvis oh. or something. And I, wow. And, and, and I remember thinking, like, like I remember thinking, God, if only I had a bloody tape recorder of some sort. Of course, these days you just put, turn your phone on without anyone noticing and he'd have recorded the whole thing which was pretty amazing situation. The other thing was that you'd sit down at lunch and ring out, I'd be sitting down at lunch there, you'd be sitting at lunch. And eventually I said to Paul, I said, it got to the stage with Ringo where I go down to sit at lunch and if he opened his mouth, I didn't want him to open his mouth because I knew the pain that I'd have from laughing would be too much to bear. <laughs> I said to Paul, why is Ringo so bloody funny? He said, well, when he was a young kid, they ripped about 13 mile of, intestines out of him. He was supposed to die and he didn't. And he said, he said so for Ringo, every day is a good day. Wow. And he's the funniest bastard I have ever sat and listened to. And it's painful listening to him. It's so funny. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, that, that's fantastic. That's a big yeah. rap because, wow. I mean, you've, you've worked with Dudley Moore and you work, you work with, so I can't believe the amount of people you've worked with over the years. Michael Caine, yeah, everybody. Dudley, Dudley was a lovely bloke. He liked tall girls, Dudley. Oh, right. yeah, I heard that. Yeah, he had a big text in there for a while. He was a little, a little fella, lovely fella. God alive, what a lovely fella. 
Uh, I mean, you were talking about writing a book. Uh, what, uh, what about a memoir? What about all the things that you've done? Is that is that something you want to do, or something you've avoided doing? Or I wouldn't do it in a million years. Not, uh, the last thing I want to do is write a bloody book. Who the hell wants to hear about me? I'd rather write these stories with little things in there that might have happened to me that no one knows. Yeah, put them up for shooting them. So, did you do yeah. that? Did you hide stuff that you done that that is oh, you in this book? through this book that a me or a mate or a world that, I've, you know, I came across, things like that, yeah. How many of them will get made into movies, do you think? Because, the, 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 I mean, I've read three so far and, I've, and, and I really think a time to do is a, is a movie waiting to be done. Yeah, a time to do, I'm, I'm actually developing that with Bunya Productions, the people that make Mystery Road and who do, I did Sweet Country with, we're developing that oh, at the wow. moment, yeah. So, uh, but the, the others, when I think about it, the others are all good little, I think the others are stories. I guess it's because of the background I, I deal in television and film and, you know, I'm always thinking in, in, in that respect in terms of a story. Uh, and I think there's a few of them there. There's, there's one, the, the, the thief one, the, the, the tea leaf story. Yeah. I think that could be a ripper in the suburbs because I got some some very colourful characters in that. Oh, absolutely! The uh, 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 Bobby and Gary and uh, and Sam, as you mentioned, you wouldn't get Sam Neil to play that that role. He's probably a bit old for that, isn't he? I'm only after good actors. <laughs> <laughs> Where, wherever there's a grandfather needed, I'm casting him. <laughs> <laughs> the lovely little critique he wrote of the book, saying that he was furious that you're actually a good writer as well as everything else. Yeah, no, it's quite it's quite funny that he's very clever with his words, the old Sam. Yeah, he's very very sharp. That was a very nice thing of him to do that and to, and to give that as a colouring thing on. I'm appalled. What is it? I'm, I'm furious. Yes. It's very funny. Yeah, no, very, <laughs> yeah. very funny. I can wait another day until I call you. You've only got my heart on a string and everything a flutter. But another lonely night. Might take forever We've only got each other to blame It's all the same to me, love Cause I know There you go, a bit of Paul McCartney and uh, the fabulous Brian Brown speaking about Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr. Now, coming up on, mm. life, on life of Brian. Dot, 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 speaking of Paul McCartney, that was one of his songs, Coming Up. It was. Mm. Uh, Maybe you should have played Coming Up and it would have flowed in beautifully to the next part of the show. What, Little Paddy? <laughs> a little patty is coming up. Um, Look, don't tell me about your dinner. Let's just <laughs> concentrate on the show. Uh, so, little patty's coming up. Uh, Huey Lewis had a chat with uh, with Huey. Tommy James from Tommy James and the Shondells had all those fabulous hits in the sixties, like Crimson and Clover and Moni Moni, all those ones that everyone's covered 
since I then. Love, I love Crimson and Clover. Yeah, tell first, us. First and only song, I think, that puts the tremolo effect on the vocal yeah. and I thought that was just amazing when I was eight. When I first heard that, I thought, there's something wrong with the radio. It was like, what's, what's going on here? There's something wrong here. And then it was a Pimson and Clover. Which you'd heard the, the Bee Gees did a little bit of, but uh, but then this was this was like, oh, wow, this but is I, but different. The, but the Bee Gees did it naturally, whereas <laughs> they, they – and I'm really glad because they don't use tremolo on, on amps and stuff anymore, but when I was a kid I had a, a guillotone amp that had tremolo on it, but I got one now which is a Strauss mm. and it's a valve amp, but it has tremolo on it. Oh, right it's, it's a great effect. Um you hardly ever get to use it, but I'm grateful that I've got it. Well, chuck Crimson and Clover into the set and start doing it. Well, I might have to. I reckon you should. I think Umberto used a bit of tremolo, Umberto Totsi on the guitars. <laughs> oh, we love Umberto. <laughs> you know, have you had a listen to Umberto? These Italians, they're so passionate. He starts off and he can barely even sing. He's like, Ti amor. Like his heart's broken, he's got a bullet wound in him. <laughs> and by the end of it, Diabodiano Dado. Oh, it's fantastic. Uh, but he puts tremolo on his guitar. Yeah, good on him. <laughs> good on him. Yeah. Uh, I put uh, I put uh, chili flakes on my pizza, but you know we don't talk about that much either. I, I like the chili flakes on the pizza. We should try and get Umberto. Well, he did, didn't your... he? Didn't he tour recently? He might be dead. He's not I'm not dead, sure. He's well, not, he is not. He's. Not, I'm sure he's still with us. Um, as is Johnny Stevens. He'll talk about almost not being with us when we uh, when we get to Johnny in a couple of weeks. And uh, Judy Collins also is coming up on uh, Life of Brian. Dot dot dot. Now, hang on. Who's Judy Collins? She's obviously an early morning start as well. Send in the clowns. Both sides oh. now. She's oh. a fabulous singer, Judy Collins. And I'll tell you who Judy Collins is. Judy Collins is the lady that the song we're going to finish the show was written about, Sweet Judy Blue Eyes by Crosby, Stills and Nash, which was, as Graham said in the interview earlier, the first song they ever recorded and I think the quintessential Crosby, Stills and Nash sound is in this song and uh, Stephen Stills wrote it about Judy Collins. Well, I don't mind drinking a John Collins, but... Um, John Collins. Is well, that a drink? A Judy a Collins. Drink? She was an absolute delight. She's touring here in the next couple of weeks as well, so uh, had, a chance to have, had a chance to have a catch-up with her, so uh, that's coming up. But what is coming up now is mm. uh, is Sweet Judy Blue Eyes by Crosby, Stills and Nash because we're done. And uh, thank you again to you, Brian, and to Murcotts. Give them a call, please. Be a bit one three hundred triple five five seven six. Come on, you you're bogging up the roads. You're a useless driver. Just admit it and get some help. Yes, one three hundred triple five five seven six. Give Mark a call. Yes, a very very wise piece of advice from Brian. As we leave you, thank you. That's uh, unusual. Yeah, it is. Take care, Brian. We'll talk to you next uh, next time. And uh, here is a bit of Crosby, Stills and Nash, and the song about a guest who's coming up on the show very soon about Judy Collins. Sweet. Judy Blue Eyes. Sign All right. Up. Cheers. It's getting to the point where I'm no fun anymore. I am sorry. 
Sometimes it hurts so badly I must cry out loud I am lonely I am yours, you are mine You are what you are You make it hard Remember what we've said and done And felt about each other If we'd have mercy Don't let the past remind us of what we are not now I am not grieving I am yours, you are mine You are what you are You make it hard Tearing yourself away from me now You are free I am crying This does not mean I don't love you I do That's forever Yes and for always I am yours You are mine You are what you are You make it hard Something inside Is telling me that I've got your secret Are you still listening? Here is the lock And laughter the key to your heart And I love you I am yours You are mine You are what you are You make it
chestnut brown canary, ruby throated sparrow. Sing the song, don't be long. Thrill me to the Voices of the angel ring around the moonlight, asking me, said she's so free. How can you catch the sparrow? They see lilting. Thank you.